Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, this is Danny Pellegrino, host of the Everything Iconic podcast, and I'm here to tell you all about Splash Refresher, because hydration is mandatory, but boring is not. Now, I love my water, but if I don't spice it up, I'm not going to finish what I took out of the fridge. That's why I love my Splash Refresher, which is flavorful, delicious, bright, hydrating, and zero calories. The wild berry flavor is my fave. No, wait, is the pineapple mango flavor my fave? You know what? All five craveable Splash Refresher flavors are my fave because they're so delicious. So get hydrated and enjoy it with Splash Refresher. Can you hear me on the phone? I do. I've got you coming out of every orifice. <laughs> I'm really not. You're breaking off quite badly. Hello, and welcome to the lock in, where I finally get to talk to people I want to hear from in a place I want to be the pub. For some reason, this bloody thing has started playing back some rubbish. Oh, right. Where were we? I forgot. I have two. We're going to hear today from Sir William Atkinson. Sounds a real stuffed shirt, doesn't he? Well, he's not. He came to Britain at the age of seven from Jamaica. He started teaching in Portsmouth. His knighthood came from being a brilliant head teacher at a series of very tough schools. So, William, what are you doing these days? Oh, uh, Germany, I'm very busy. I'm a trustee of something called a Klink uh, charity. You may know something about. Uh, for a number of years, I've been the uh, trustee of the Royal Shakespeare Company. I'm a uh, deputy lieutenant for Greater London. I, I used, until about a week ago, another charity, the Mousetrap uh, Projects Charity, uh, fantastic charity, uh, and sundry other things. Do you do any teaching at all? Oh, no, no. When I gave up some time ago, I literally gave that up. And to be absolutely frank, for the last 10 years or so of my uh, professional career, I did very little teaching, unless it was covering for colleagues or away, and we didn't have a supply teacher step in, so I'd step in there, and it, it was kind of you know, a fantastic experience for me because I knew the children, they knew me, and we had a great time. So it was very, very easy and something which I enjoyed doing. But as far as structural teaching with the lesson preparation, delivery, and the marking uh, assessment associated with that, I've not done that for a number of years. Why did you decide to become a teacher? Ah, very good question, Jeremy. I was very, very lucky in my own schooling. Uh, I, as you've indicated, I came from Jamaica at the age of seven. I had had no schooling whatsoever in Jamaica up to that point. My elder brother, by two years, had been to school. He was nine. He'd been to school for a couple of years, and he could read and write and all the sort of thing that 
you should be able to do after going to school for two years. Unfortunately, at the interview, uh, way back in the day there, we're talking about 1957, uh, when my mother took me to the local primary school, there was a mix-up uh, at the interview, and the teacher thought my name was Vassal, my older brother, and his name was William. And I'd been to school for two years, and I was unable to read and write. So for my sins, I was then consigned to a remedial class for a number of years, uh, where I learned a number of things, and probably the most significant thing I learned at that time was that I was not very good at school, because I was surrounded by other children, all from local white kids, uh, who were struggling with learning, who messed around, not focused on learning, had very low self-esteem, as far as academics is concerned. So I imbibed that environment. So I, I, I convinced myself, and the system helped me a bit, that I was not very good at schooling, and uh, uh, that was the initial part. Subsequently, I took my 11 plus two years later, failed out gloriously. At that point, they discovered the mistake in my age. I was placed with a class of age appropriate young people. But because I'd learned that I was thick and I, I was not terribly good at learning, I made very little progress. And so two years later, I took the 11 plus again, and again I failed gloriously. I was very lucky, though, uh, in many respects, uh, that my primary education, although academic, it was absolutely appalling. In terms of being able to get on with people, get on with teachers, I was able to do that, and I enjoy that very much. Transferring to secondary school in Battersea, I was blessed to go to a school called Battersea County School, which is no longer there. And that school was really peopled by uh, teachers who were committed to supporting working class youngsters to do their absolute best. And they were not prepared to take second best, basically. As a result of their superb support, encouragement and significant levels of challenge from a number of teachers over a period of time. I got the impression that teaching was something that was really important and had the potential to transform people's lives. Uh, at the end of my year 11, I had the distinction of failing all of my O-levels, with the exception of history. Why I got history, I have no idea. Now, in those days, uh, one, in order to get into the sixth form, it was necessary to get something like five or six O-levels. I had one. So I couldn't go into the sixth form. And I looked about getting a job uh, in, uh, in the outside world. My older brother would left school, very distinguished sportsman, very distinguished uh, academically. He had a string of O-levels. He tried to get a job that was commensurate with his qualification. At interview, up to point of interview, he was very, very successful. But at interview, he tended not to get the jobs. Now, we are talking about 1966 in London, where racism was overt, unlike it is today. And uh, I thought to myself, there's my brother, very accomplished, uh, with good qualification, unable to get a job commensurate with those qualifications, what chance have I got with one O-level? So I decided I wouldn't go out there to stack shelves. What I would actually do is stay on and go into something called the upper fifth, which is where youngsters would place if they were uh, taking their uh, O-levels, failed their O-levels, but not got, uh, didn't want to leave school. 
And I was able again to take my O-levels uh, for a second time in uh, the October-November. I managed to get five or six, whatever was necessary to get into the sixth form. And at that point, I met this absolutely fantastic uh, teacher. And I, as I've said, uh, you know, I'd had good teachers up to that point, very supportive, uh, extremely encouraging. But this guy was, he's a different caliber. His name was Ray Sanders, and he was charged of the sixth form. And that was a man with an absolute mission to really grab these working class kids, make them uh, come to understand that their potential, their capability, but in order to realize that potential, that capability, they had to graft and work very hard, and nothing was going to come easy. And over a period of months, that man convinced me that I could do stuff in the classroom. He convinced me that I had potential. And he convinced me that it was in my interest to invest in my own future by working very, very hard. And as a consequence of his encouragement and significant levels of challenge, I was able to recognize that teaching had the potential to transform lives, especially for those of us who were born in less advantageous circumstances. And given the good experience I'd had with other teachers going through the system, and this absolutely fantastic guy in the sixth form, I thought teaching is something I'd like to do. So that's why I embarked on that course of action. You talk about Britain in the 1950s and 60s as being overtly racist. Do you mean that it, it's not racist anymore or it's just not overtly racist? No, I, I think I said that I qualified that point. You talk about London. Said that uh, it's race overt racism where you're walking down the street and somebody's calling you a nigger, a wog, a spade, where you uh, turn up for a Saturday morning job which is there. You, you walk into that uh, establishment, the job is gone, and an hour or so later, your white mate walks into that establishment and gets a job that was gone. Overt racism was where there were signs all over the community about no blacks, no wogs, uh, go home, coons, and stuff like that. Uh, the difference today, and I have to say, uh, is uh, today the environment, uh, as far as racism is concerned, has much improved, which is not to say for one millisecond that racism is still not to be found throughout our society. It's just not as in-your-face as it used to be. You will recall, Jeremy, going to football matches. I don't know if you're a footballer. But uh, in the crowd, uh, I'm a Spurs supporter. At that time, uh, people were making all kinds of noises when a black player was in uh, possession of the ball. And it wasn't always the black player from the opposing team. Sometimes it was a black player from your own team who was getting monkey noises, chants, and disparaging comments. So even in leisure, when you go to something like that, uh, and then, of course, you looked at the world around you, and every image, almost every image you had of black people was a negative image. If they were on TV and movies, they were often the baddies, or they were doing a menial task. So that kind of racism was reinforced at a variety of levels. 
sometimes subtly, sometimes not so subtly. Today, I think things are much better, but oh my God, have we got a long way to go. Is it sometimes used as an excuse for not doing well, do you think? Not trying? Well, I, I think uh, it's very hard to generalise about that. Uh, it is, of course, possible. We all get disappointments in life. We all fail to get jobs. And sometimes people will say, my face doesn't fit. Now, that's not a black or white thing. People say that. And it is possible that sometimes one gets disappointment, get locked down, uh, let down, or a bad decision is made. And some people could put it down to race. I was very fortunate that uh, I never adopted that attitude. If I failed to get something, and I very often failed to get positions I applied for. In fact, when I wanted to become a deputy teacher, I made over 50 applications to get uh, that post. And it took 50 before I was successful. At that, during the course of that journey, I had lots of opportunities to give up and say, look, uh, you know, uh, they're not going to have a black person as a deputy in, in the school at that time and just give, pack up my stuff and go off the pitch. But I wasn't inclined to do that. I was inclined because I had very strong beliefs in my ability, in my, uh, my, jet, my drive and the passion I had for what I wanted to do, that I wasn't prepared to make excuses. And what I would actually do is go back to the drawing board, listen sometimes, and I, critic, and I say this sometimes, to the feedback. Sometimes the feedback was nonsense. It was absolute rubbish, yeah? Uh, people were just using words to try and smooth over the fact that they didn't fancy you, or in fact, somebody was better than you. Now, where I had feedback, which actually specifically talked about the areas I needed to improve, I would look very hard at those areas and go to work on improving those. So failure and disappointment for me was always a catalyst to try and do better, to give them as few excuses as possible to reject me and turn me down. Yeah? So the idea of my, my pigmentation getting away was never something I would entertain inside. I knew what was going on in the world, but I wasn't going to let the world determine the way I saw myself within that world. In those days when racism was more overt, did you ever wish that your parents had gone somewhere else than to this country? Never, never. That never occurred to me. I have to say, whilst racism was really rampant and all over the place, I was very lucky that I had a... Re because I lived in a part of Battersea that contained very, very few black people. So all my friends, and I was fairly popular, all my friends were white, without exception. So therefore, I knew that there were segments, chunks of the indigenous population, who were open-minded, who were prepared to judge an individual on their merits uh, on, uh, rather than on their, the, the colour of their skin. So I had that kind of direct day-to-day -day experience whilst, under, uh, whilst experiencing the, uh, the full force of racism outside of my friendships. Yeah. So because I had very extensive friendship and 
although I was not successful academically initially within school, I had a lot of success as a sports person. I was a Battersea boxing champion, which in those days in Battersea was a good thing. You know, people wanted to know me because, you know, I was okay. Uh, and, and that was important because in Battersea in those days, if you left your home and went onto the streets, uh, then sometimes you were challenged. So it's nice to have a guy who's about to see boxing champion as your mate, yeah? So I had some very close relationship uh, that was sustained over years with the local population. So I developed what I thought was a balanced view. Yes, there were some horrible white people out there, but yes, there's some horrible black people out there. There's some great white people, there's some great black people. And it, it sounds very simplistic to you, but, you know, that really informed the way I went around business. And to be frank with you, in terms of going somewhere else, where could I go? You know, if you looked at images of Africa in those days, forget that. Uh, Europe didn't look any different than Great Britain. And the United States, God, can you imagine it? So no, the idea of going somewhere else never occurred to me. Uh, and within my bubble, I was a very happy person. So you become a teacher because you think it's a way of inspiring others or get, letting others achieve their potential, perhaps. And um, you, seem to, you seem to thrive on it. I must say, I found that I've only taught one lesson in my life. And I found it completely impossible. I was, there was never quiet. It was always a nightmare. Well, uh, Jeremy, if you only taught once, you, you haven't really taught, yeah? I don't know what preparation you had before you had that experience. Yeah, I don't know what you knew about the young people you were teaching, yeah? I don't know what provision you'd made for their learning. Uh, so I could understand if you're doing a one-off event like that, it could be a nightmare. Why shouldn't it be, depending on the school you go to, yeah? Yeah, why are you standing in front of me? You're wearing a label saying, teacher, so what? Yeah, and so for me, teaching has always been a passion. It's always been because I've recognized the, the impact of my own life and the ability to really shape people going forward, or better still, give them the tools that they can shape their own futures. I very much believe that young people have the capacity and potential to be the authors of their own futures, yeah? And so that's what I instill, that's what motivates me, and that's what drives my passion. Great schools, great teachers, uh, not even great, good teachers, good schools can make a, a difference. And then at the other extreme, you have some absolutely incredible teachers and some incredible schools. But good schools make a difference, yeah? Have you always taught in tough schools? The answer to that is uh, I think so. Uh, when I taught in Portsmouth, where I trained, uh, yeah, it was a secondary modern boys' school. Uh, on an estate. I came to London, North London, and I, taught, I taught in a comprehensive school that was referred to by the Evening Standard at the time, in 1971, two-ish, as the Broken Back Comprehensive. Uh, I then went on to another secondary uh, school in North London before going to South London and jumping around a bit. But the answer, the short answer is yes. But that's, that's deliberate because the people I wanted to play with, the people I wanted to work with, the people I wanted to help with others around me 
to raise up were children from disadvantaged backgrounds. And they tended to be uh, situated in tough areas and in tough schools. So, yeah, and that was what really attracted me. I wanted to do for them what other teachers have done, uh, done for me. Were the staff demoralised? Staff are variable. Uh, and I, I guess you're talking about those early experiences of teaching in tough schools in London. They were variable. There's some absolutely fantastic teachers working in those schools, uh, doing a great job, some wonderful kids, absolutely wonderful kids. There were some teachers who were okay. They came in, they did their job, they prepared their lessons, they marked their books, they were fair and decent to the young kids, and they did their best, but they were not inspirational. And then there was some, uh, another group of fairly cynical people who really didn't care about teaching, didn't really care about the kids, and they were just, you know, going through the motions. Uh, so there was a variety of, of, of teachers uh, that I encountered in those days. But the examples I took was from the best teachers, and there were some fantastic examples. Why didn't it get to you? Well, the kids. Yeah, why didn't, why didn't the whole experience of le teaching in a tough school in a demoralised area with a lot of people who are not particularly good in the staff room, why didn't you get it, it get to well, you? Well, first of all, there were, I was very lucky that even in the toughest school, there was always a group of, of, of teachers who wanted to make a difference, who were firing in all cylinders, who were up for the challenge on a daily basis. So you had that going on. But the other reason why it never got to me is that this is what I wanted to do. This was my mission. This was my calling. This, this was what I was born to do. So the bigger the challenge almost, the more I, I engage with it. Yeah? Uh, and I just knew what a difference uh, we could make in the lives of young people, especially from those areas. So the fact that they were tough, you had some children there who didn't want to learn, you had some very challenging parents uh, associated with those schools, that didn't uh, interfere with my motivation, my drive in anyway. It was just more stuff to overcome. Uh, and the, the more stuff I had to deal with in order to get the young people to switch on. So not, not in the least bit was I, which is not to say I didn't get fed up from time to time, which is not to say I didn't have sleepless nights, but I never questioned uh, what I was doing. I never questioned my purpose at all, but I was exhausted, often exhausted. And in the process, I spent a lot of time working, which I should have been spending with my own family. Uh, so while I was driven and I got a lot of satisfaction, I think in terms of my family and I have a wife and four uh, kids, which are <laughs> now adults, of course, uh, I don't think I was fair to them. I gave them less time than I should have done because I was so focused on doing the work. Yeah, My wife says I'm very selfish. <laughs> <laughs> 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. So the thing is not to let it get to you. Just just keep it in proportion and realize and hang hang on to the objective. Yeah, that's right, Joe, but you need to believe in it. You've got to think this is your purpose. This is what you want to do. And you've got to believe it's that important to do it. And if you do that and you can manage some balance, I think that's a win-win. I did one really well, but the other bit I didn't do nearly as well as I should have done. Yeah? Uh, So it's win and a bit. (laughs) Not a win-win, unfortunately. Yeah? But no, and the other thing we haven't touched on is just how fantastic young people are today. They're unbelievable. You've got kids, you've got grandkids or whatever, and they're great. Imagine hundreds of those, those littered about a school. You're colliding with, uh, with almost every minute of the day. It's so uh, empowering. It's fantastic that you've got these people you can play with, you can share, and they're great. They're nice. They're friendly. You know, they have ambitions and stuff. They have lots of challenges in their life, and you can help them negotiate their way through. Oh, fantastic, man. Do you think they're better than they used to be? I think the answer to that, I would say yes. Only because the the kids today are more switched on. They're more conscious of the world around them. They're more conscious of difference. They're more accepting of difference in the world. They're concerned with big issues like climate change, big issues like fairness, big issues like racism. And when I was uh, teaching earlier, to be gay in the school was a real challenge, yeah? But I remember when I was finishing teaching all together and we were saying farewell at one of our year assemblies, a, a young male person came on the stage and declared his love for another male person in, 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 the, in the assembly in front of hundreds and hundreds of kids. And everybody was just cool with that. And that, that you know... 30 years ago, that would never have happened, yeah? So I think kids are more tolerant, they're much more informed, they're more inquisitive, and they're, they're more generous uh, than they've ever been. So kids are fantastic. What do you make of the reinterpretation of our history? Is it reinterpretation? Well, this is your field, Jeremy, of course, but is it reinterpretation or is it just a, a fuller telling of what's gone on? Yeah, because what I see is that lots of our history has been blanked out. 
And what's now going on is to try and throw lights on the entire canvas, not just that part of a canvas that we've always been taught, yeah? So the retelling, it's, it's, it's maybe a truthful telling of our history, a much more balanced, informed, rounded version of our history than has hitherto been the case. I think that's what is emerging, and that's so important in the world we live in to get better perspective on why issues are the way they are today. They have not just come out of the, uh, out of the blue. These are uh, 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 in, in issues that are grounded in our history, grounded in a way we went out into the world, we colonized that world, and then we sought to legitimize our activities in these other countries with other population. In, and in the process, as you know, Jeremy, subjugating them and making them second-class citizens and then having an ideology to justify that position, yeah? So our history, the full telling of our history, which is slowly emerging, I think is important for the well-being of the entire nation. Not just how black people see themselves, but how the majority of people see themselves. And, they, you know, I think it's a necessary development. We're all on a journey here, William. We're all on a journey, and it doesn't matter whether you're black or white. I mean, I didn't, I didn't appreciate what a ghastly figure Cecil Rhodes was, for example. I just thought it was funny that he said all that stuff about being born English is winning first prize in the lottery of life. I just thought it was just comical. I hadn't realised and that's from a really intelligent, well-read, <laughs> sophisticated person of a certain age. Exactly. We've all got a long way to go. Oh, absolutely, Jeremy. Absolutely. But I think we need to make it together. I don't think we should be throwing words at each other and name-calling. I think we should be part of this unveiling going forward. And we should understand that some people... 200 years ago, 100 years ago, 50, did certain things, but it doesn't mean that the people who represent that community uh, somehow got to pay a price for that, yeah. What, what do you think of the whole tearing down of statues business? Well, that's an interesting uh, issue uh, that you raised there, and I know at one time, do you live in Bristol? No, I don't. No, no, why did I, uh, maybe uh, you interviewed me at Bristol, BBC Bristol, that's right, yeah, that's correct, years ago. Uh, the statue is important because, I, like the rest of the world, I saw that statue come down. One of the things I do, Jeremy, is I chair the London and South East region of the Canal and Rivers Trust. I chair the advisory board. And uh, in Tower Hamlets, uh, there was a, a statue there of a slave owner, and that uh, the big issue arose after the Bristol event what to do with that? Well, what the, uh, what the uh, Canal and River Trust decided to do, because there was a lot of interest around that, was on a temporary basis to remove the statue from its plinth. Having done that, to engage with the community about what should be done with that statue. Should it be uh, replaced where it was with some uh, contexting information? Should it be placed in a museum? What should we use a plinth for? Yeah, and uh, as part of 
tried to resolve those issues, what they have done, and I, I chair a small uh, group uh, in, involved in the consultation, is to set up an, a, a, an extensive cons uh, consultation with the community about what we should actually do with that uh, over time. So I think the way for, and in the process, one of the things we're keen to do is to educate the local population about the, the person on the statue, how that activity spread right across the country because what he was doing was making money from human trafficking in, in, in a way. Uh, so it wasn't just a question of tearing down the statue. It was about, right, what should we do with this statue? Uh, uh, it was only put up about 100 years ago. What should we do with it? And what should we replace the plane? And what do you think about it? So we wanted to engage. We want to engage a community in a conversation, not just about the removal of the statue, but what lies behind that. What did slavery mean? What was the impact of slavery in London? What was the impact of slavery on the canal network in this country? Yeah. So I, I think we should actually, where there is an issue, then I don't think things should be torn down. I think there should be meaningful dialogue about what we, if anything, should do about those statues. But there's such a lot of bollocks talked about community, isn't there? I mean, it's just community, community, community. What does it mean? Well, it's a very good point. I wouldn't quite use the word bollocks, but uh, uh, yeah, it can be challenging sometimes. Well, by community, what I mean is those people who are resident in a particular location. Yeah. Now, some of those residents, are I've got lots to say. Others have little or not, nothing to say. If one is going to consult the, the, uh, the community, it is necessary to find a variety of ways into that community if we want to try and hear what the usual silent majority of are, are actually thinking. And that's a real challenge to get that because you will get that vociferous group who are ready to offer their views, their uh, voice on a whole range of issues at a drop of a hat. But that's not the community. That's just one aspect of the community. It's reach, reaching the others who are usually silent, who have views, but are usually silent, who might be intimidated uh, by the ways we try to consult with them, or indeed, in, uh, they're not familiar with the language that we use. Uh, so community is a difficult concept, but we roughly know what we are talking about, Jeremy, with all due respect. Well, you are a very moderate man, aren't you? Uh, yeah, a moderate man with passions. Yeah. yeah. And I tend to be fairly balanced, which is not always welcome in every quarter because people would like me to be more vociferous over here, less so over there, and I tend to follow my own, uh, my own pathway. Who do you find the most frustrating to deal with? I don't know. I don't quite understand what you mean, my friend. Well, you say that people are pulling you this way and that. Take more of a line on this. Take that line on that. Well, I, I don't think I find anyone or any group more or less frustrating because I tend to, to listen to what's being said, 
because I want to be informed by the conversation and I want to be informed by converse, uh, conversation across the spectrum, not just the bit that I might feel emotionally uh, supportive of. I want to hear what the other voices are saying if I'm going to have a, a proper balanced view and a view that at the end of the day I feel strongly enough about that I can assert then I need to listen. So I listen to everything that's been said. I make a point of reading uh, not just my preferred organ, The Guardian, but I go and read very uh, different kinds of newspapers. I don't mean the mail, but I certainly mean the Times and Telegraph and stuff like that, yeah? Because they're really intelligent, informed voices who are contradicting uh, some of the stuff that I'm getting from my preferred organ, if you know what I mean, yeah? But it's all helped to have that rounded view. I didn't realise you were a Guardian reader. <laughs> Is that a bad thing, Jeremy? Well, accuracy bothers me quite a bit. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, yeah. I, you sound I, surprised. I Sorry? You sound surprised. Well, no, I'm just trying to think. Uh, there are some Guardian reader uh, uh, writers that I don't pay a lot of attention to because I think they might have a particular bias that seemed to come through too much in their piece, yeah? So, yeah. But it's just like communities. There's good and bad bits. So the good bits of The Guardian, some dodgy bits. Yeah, but in general, I'm a Guardian reader. Now, you know, we spoke, this thing is called the lock-in because we were going to have it in a pub. In fact, we did have... A, we had about three or four in a pub. Yeah. And uh, then we got beaten by the lockdown and, and all the pubs yeah. shut. If we were in a pub, what would you be drinking? Uh, it depends on the time of day. I tend not to drink a lot of beer because it's too gassy and stuff, yeah? So it, it could be a gin and tonic, my friend, or depending on what else is going on, a glass of wine or something, yeah. And when I used to play a lot of rugby, then it was always lager. I drink gallons of that. That's the only time I drank beer at the end of... Uh, a game in the bar. Uh, otherwise, it'd be something like gin and tonic, depending, or more likely uh, one wine or another. How do you find lockdown? I find it very, very difficult, uh, but I'm ever so, ever so privileged. First of all, I've got a pension, so I'm not worried about work. Uh, my accommodation is paid for, so I don't have to worry about those kinds of stuff. I have enough disposable income to buy what I reasonably need. I said to my wife, I'd love a boat. She says, no way. So I can't have a boat, yeah? Uh, so in terms of my physical needs and where I live is very, very pleasant, yeah? Uh, so on one side, that's, that's great. And I'm locked down with my wife and I couldn't think of a better person to be locked down with. <laughs> she, she has a different viewpoint, but... <laughs> That's another thing, story. Uh, but I have four children, I have three grandchildren, and they're like 70 miles away from where I am. And because of lockdown rules, I can't see them. Uh, my eldest son, our eldest son, is like 44, and it's the first time in 44 years we've not had a child with us at Christmas, yeah? And uh, so that was uh, fairly tough. So the worst bit for me is not seeing the, the, the children and the grandchildren. 
but in other respects, uh, I, I am surviving it. And I, I kind of like uh, the exercise stuff. I, you, if you looked at me, you wouldn't think I'd do any exercise. But I cycle a bit. I love walking. We're on the coast. I can look out the window now, Germany. I see the sea rolling in. Uh, it's fantastic. That bit is fantastic. Uh, uh, I like cycling, so we can cycle for miles and stuff like that. We're, we're, we're privileged, to be frank with you. Absol we're privileged anyway, but given the lockdown conditions that many of the children I used to teach and their families are experiencing on estates in very limited accommodation, worrying about food, uh, worrying about whether their low-paying job's going to be there tomorrow. You know, I'm super, super privileged. Do you think we ought to open the schools? I think we ought to do that as soon as we can, where it's safe. We don't want to... Uh, put the teachers themselves, and it's not only teachers, but it's the cleaners, it's the support staff, and not just the teachers. We have to be very mindful of their safety. We've got to be mindful of the safety of the young people. And so when, as soon as we can do it safely, I think we, we must reopen the schools. Because the youngsters who are suffering, all youngsters are suffering uh, with the closure school, but the youngsters who are suffering to the greatest extent are those from the most disadvantaged uh, sections of our community. Those who may not have uh, com access to computers, uh, who may not have parents who can support them in their learning as they go for forward. Those youngsters who are in very confined, cramped uh, physical surroundings. Yeah, so the more we can open the schools, the sooner we can open those and give those children a much better experience than they're getting now. Although there's a big issue about the learning that's been lost and how we're going to catch up with that. And I'm fearful that the government's going to be thinking in terms of little short-term measures and they will not do. Uh, we need to be investing and really thinking uh, over five to ten years of additional investment. Something very similar to the Marshall A plan that came in after the, the Second World War. Uh, we need that level of investment over time in these young people, especially those from disadvantaged background. If we're going to not only give them a chance, but if they don't get a chance to really develop, uh, then I think they could, some of them could behave in ways that could be unhelpful to wider society, and we'll all end up paying a price. But basically, you strike me as a happy man. Well, I have everything to be happy about. I'm healthy. Uh, my family are healthy. I'm uh, I have a pension, as I said. Uh, I've got... Uh, I like people. Uh, I like rugby. Uh, England were pathetic last week, but that's another... It was hopeless. Otoji had a good game, though, didn't he? Well, he was... A, I like Otoji a lot. I'm a Saracens supporter. I used to play for Saracens, Yeah. So I, I'm, I'm disposed to all things Saracens, but I have to say that England as a group were anemic, ponderous. They didn't turn up at all. And I'm really pleased for the Scots. I thought the Scots were really up for it, and they certainly gave us one. Uh, and I'm looking forward uh, to Italy, that we really begin to discover our true selves and then build going forward. 
as you know, Jeremy, we lost the first game against France. A very good France, uh, French team last, uh, last uh, championship and went on to win the thing. So I'm hoping we'll do the same again. Uh, this is a good French side and I, would, I, I, I wouldn't bet against uh, uh, France winning it. Uh, not France, sorry. Uh, Scotland winning the championship, having beaten England. They could go through and defeat everyone else and be at a triple crown and the championship. They were fantastic, weren't they? I thought so. And I thought well-deserved as well. I mean, there's a thing about the English. We can be a bit cocky, you know? <laughs> and so when it actually comes to these other nations in the United Kingdom, I think they want to give us one. They always have done, yeah? And it's good that it happens, yeah? Yeah, pull us up a bit short. No problem with William, that. William, thanks very much indeed. Sir William, thanks very much indeed. No, it's nice talking to you, Jeremy. We're going to have that gin and tonic. I look forward to that one day, my friend. Yeah? You take it easy. Well, there you are. Sir William Atkinson, knight of the realm and a truly irrepressible fellow. I'll drink whatever he's having. Next week, we've got Tony Parsons, the one-time hip young gunslinger who covered the greats of rock and roll for NME before writing his novel Man and Boy. But there's more to him than that. Until then, goodbye. Hi, this is Paige from Giggly Squad, and I want to talk to you about Splash Refresher and my water intake. Okay, so you guys obviously know that I'm a hydrated girly, but sometimes when you drink that much water, it starts to just taste bland, and you're just like, I need something to spice it up. That's why I love Splash Refresher. It has zero sugar, zero calories, and it's a splash of sweetness. And they come in five different flavors. They're so good. Wild berry, acai grape, pineapple mango, lemon, and mandarin orange. My favorite is the wild berry because I just, I just love a berry. So if you're like me and you're drinking water all day, then try Splash Refresher. It's going to absolutely change your water game and it's good for you. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.